Hey, and welcome to another edition of the Rugby Report Card. Uh, kind of, first of all, just start off as a great live pod last week, mate. Great that live wasn't pod. last week. That was fantastic. That was a pretty great pod. Uh, joining us today, we're very lucky to have Andy Lockwood joining us today, uh, all the way from Canada. I feel a bit bad because it's uh, 6.30 in the morning right now, so uh, we have awoken him from his slumber. But thank you so much for joining us today, Andy. Hey, my pleasure, guys. My pleasure. Um, and I guess um, Andy... Um, we came across him on Twitter, um, and he runs the rugby vacancy Twitter handle. Um, and I think it all started, I was taking the piss out of the Waratahs media department, uh, and that, and that got us talking. Rightly so. Um, so I don't know, can I throw to you, Andy, give us a bit of an introduction of, of who everyone's listening to today. Mm. Hey, thanks guys. Hey, look, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah. So as you, as you can tell from the accent, I'm not Canadian. Um, I'm actually, uh, in the British army and I'm posted over here in Canada. So I live over in Canada. But I'm actually British. Can I just say you've just you've just added a great value. There's now two British people on this podcast to, to one Aussie. So this is already the best podcast already out of the series. <laughs> two to one odds is not is, is pretty good. Uh, so as you mentioned, I, I run rugby vacancies. Um, that started a few years ago. I was I happened to be at um, an intern at Bath Academy. Uh, I started when I was 35. Finished when I was 37. I was probably the oldest intern in the world. Uh, but that kind of wrapped up. Uh, and I found myself with with no involvement in rugby whatsoever for the first time in about 30 years, which felt really strange. And I started looking for uh, coaching or, or sort of rugby administration roles. And I found a load, but they weren't in the right place. It wasn't really right for me at the time. Uh, and I was sending a load of messages to mates saying, hey, this is near you. You should, you should have a look, check it out. Well, after a few of those messages, I thought, why don't I just put this all in one place uh and that's how rugby vacancies was born essentially it connects rugby players and coaches and staff uh, from around the world to roles wherever it happens to be and it's all in one place it's all easy to view uh, so that started a few years ago um at about the same time i started uh what was eventually going to become a charity it's called the rugby outreach project uh, and I provide free training programs and advice to rugby teams around the world to make them a bit fitter, a bit faster, maybe a bit stronger. Uh, it was going pretty well. Uh, and I turned it into a charity just as COVID happened. Um, and so we managed to transition into sort of helping uh, helping teams just with all that kind of remote stuff that teams were doing in lockdown and all that. And we've come out the back of that now. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to assist teams from... Um, from teams that are in the sort of uh, HSBC sevens kind of arena, all the way down to your kind of grassroots teams in PNG that play sevens because they can't get 15 or 13 players on the pitch at any one time and, and everything in between. I suppose the, then the last thing I'm doing uh, to add to all that as well, uh, I'm also doing a, a PhD looking at teamwork and leadership and how those military concepts can translate into uh, sport. So you're pretty busy then by the sound. Yeah, you've got a bit on. You've got a bit on. Thanks for squeezing us in for the small amount of time you have. But it's it's amazing all, the, all, all those things that you're doing. And I was looking through your Twitter account on the uh, rugby outreach and there's some, it's awesome, even as you said, the fact that you know, want to play rugby for Mauritius, you know, trying to get out there, trying to get that training involved. There's a lot of good things. And, and I'll come back to, to that later, but I'm really interested in in rugby actually for you you know where did that passion come from where did that you know what was the spark was it there a family connection where did that that will and want to to be involved in in obviously uh, the gentleman's game so i think 
probably like a lot of us, I got taken by my parents about seven years old down to the local rugby club on a Sunday morning. I'd, I'd never played. I'd had no real, uh, uh, I'd had no real interest in rugby until then. I was quite a chunky kid, uh, and so I think uh, my parents were like, "Well, he's pretty chunky. Uh, he's probably not going to play soccer. Let's take him down to the rugby pitch." Uh, yeah, and that was a kind of start. You've definitely lived in Canada too long if you're calling it soccer. Come on. Andrew. And, and I would just also like to add for anyone just listening to the audio, looks absolutely shredded. Yeah, not, absolutely. Not a chunky kid anymore. <laughs> no, so the strength and conditioning is working. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, go on. We need to be on this rugby <laughs> outreach. He needs to give us programs. Um, I know. And it's funny being out here, um, especially when. When Brits talk about hockey, we normally talk about field hockey. You talk about hockey out here, and it's it's absolutely ice hockey. Uh, but yeah, so there's d- different words, different things around the world. So um, it, like all of us, it started as a kid, uh, and it just kind of went from there. Really, um, I've played I played all sorts of sports growing up, but rugby was always the main one. Uh, and then I went to uh, I lived in Perth for a year um, in '99. I played, uh, ended up playing for um, uh, Leeming who I think is still going and play at Curtin University, but I also played for uh, Western Australia under-19s as well. Uh, that was an interesting time. There was a uh, there was a particularly bad day when I got dumped by my girlfriend at the time. On the way to training for WA, I got pulled over by the police for speeding, although they didn't give me a ticket. And then at training that night, I was dropped because uh, I had a British passport and I wasn't Australian. Oh, nice. So... It was, it was an interesting, interesting evening. It sounds like rugby in Western <laughs> Australia. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, tell us about that experience, though, because like, you must have some stories about rugby, don't you? Because uh, I'm imagining wherever it was in South in South of England, um, South of England, where you were playing, was was very different to the arid, dry, hot area of Western Australia as an under nineteen. You know, coming out here from the lifestyle changes. What was the difference in, in and how was it? Because it must have been a, a seismic change, really. I think the, the biggest difference was um, it didn't rain on any Saturday. <laughs> we're talking Perth. about England now, yes. Uh, yeah. So I mean, the, the weather was probably the biggest was probably the biggest difference. Not playing in mud and stodge you know for for two-thirds of the season um dry pitches although i suppose having having skinned knees uh and uh, constantly having uh, a bit of uh, skin off the front of the knees was probably a big difference um so yeah but in terms of rugby i say it was probably a bit faster just because the pitches are a bit drier mm. um which kind of suited me because you know, I, was a, I was a back so um yeah uh and I, I liked perth it was a lovely place to live uh the kind of what I really liked was that um, teams, you'd start at like under sevens or under sixes on a Saturday morning and, and every team would then play through on that Saturday to the men's senior team later on in the afternoon. Um, and I thought that, and that, that gave it a really nice family atmosphere. In England at the time, it was very much, you know, if you are up to under 16, you play on a Sunday. And then if you're cults and seniors, you, you play on a Saturday. Um, mm-hmm. But I really liked the fact that all teams played at the club uh, on a Saturday because it meant that everyone stayed and hung on and it just made, gave it a great atmosphere. Mm. Can, can I, ju- I want to ask you about the rugby vacancies um, because it's got a, a pretty huge Twitter following. How does that work? So how, do people approach you with jobs or are you looking around LinkedIn and, and, and you know, you, how, how does that work? How do you get the jobs? And then what is you know, do you, do you get a commission? How, how does that work? How does that whole world work? And has it been effective of, of getting people mm. applying for the right jobs? Because um, I saw the, the the TARS one and I thought um, anyone, 
Anyone could do that better than they're currently doing it. <laughs> um, but no, it's just, I, was, I, I don't know. I just want to know how that process works because um, someone outside of that world and love my career, don't want to get into that world. But yeah, it's a fantasy, isn't it? W- working in rugby. Um, it would be the dream job for so many people. So that's, re- that's really interesting. So there's, so to the first bite question is a bit of both me. So sometimes I will find roles and I will, and I will, and I will um, put them out there for people to apply to. Other times clubs get in touch with me uh, and offer a, a couple of basic packages for clubs to get their roles out there. Um, and rugby vacancies, uh, you know, I've worked with everyone from sort of national governing bodies, national teams, super rugby teams, all the way down to, you know, you kind of, you know, lower level of, of amateur rugby. Um, and so the the idea of rugby and sport is like any other kind of industry. There's always a kind of role where um, people can apply to. So let's take that, that the Waratahs one, the sort of media and communications role. If you work in media and communications in, in another industry that is not sport related, actually you can cross over pretty easily to sport. The basic concepts are the same. You're just in a slightly different environment. And I think people will often get a little bit focused on the aspect that it's about rugby or it's mm. about sport. But actually the reality is that a lot of people can cross over from other industries mm. in and out of sport. Is there um, oversaturation with the job like that if you post it? You know, a, a job as high profile as, as the Waratahs? Do you, do you put that out and the Waratahs like, oh, come on, mate. We've got 500 applicants we've got to sift through now. Um, <laughs> or, or is that what they want? <laughs> or is that what they want? They're, they're the largest pool that they can look at. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just fascinated by the process. And it kind of depends on, on the role in the organisation. So some organisations will, will reach out um, and say, hey, look, we, we're looking for this particular role or, or type of person. Um, other organisations will simply just want to, cast as wide as possible see what they can get because actually in especially in australia where there is so much sport so much professional sport actually if you're looking for a bit of a if you're looking for a bit of a rock star um you know you're probably looking at either other sport uh, other sports to bring them in that kind of thing so there's a there might not be that larger pool of of people who could do the job and do the job the kind of level that that organization is expecting um, so, so it's a bit of both, mate. Um, and sometimes um, organisations will get in touch and they'll say, hey, look, we're looking for this particular person. Other times, you know, those roles go out there and then they just cast the net as wide as possible. How did you get into it? Was it because you've got, you have cast your web so far wide? It's amazing. You know, you've got jobs in here in Australia, England, etc. What was its genesis? Was it just England and it evolved from that? Or did you go the opposite? And and the second part of that question, sorry, Blake, is just has there been a job where you thought, I actually, that's a, that's exciting. You know, you love, you're in the army and that's a, and you've got your PhD, but you're like, that that job excites me. That would be pretty cool to do. Yeah, there's a few. And, and I, I come across those kind of roles and, and I just think, if only I didn't have, you know, I wasn't sort of uh, uh, bound in by the uh, by the contract. Um, I'd, uh, I'd I'd apply for it. So yeah, I do I do see those kind of roles, um, and they don't come up very often because you know the kind of areas I'm looking at, I think are probably fairly niche. But um, yeah, they do come up. Um, not so much in rugby, generally in wider sport. So can we just put it out there that you're not applying for the Waratahs job then? No. No, 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 definitely not. Okay, no. My hands up. My, bag, my hands up, but I need to be approached. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were going to say, uh, no, I was going to say, 
has have you found that it's connected um, rugby internationally? Because that's one thing I used to love at club rugby. You'd just be going about your season, then all of a sudden, some pom would show up. All right. And, and and all of a sudden, you know, they, they've recruited a coach who coached in England and he's got a totally different mindset um, and it, it's added so much to your club. Has it created that globalisation, those international connections? So just to confirm, you said by employing a British pom to quote oh, has added so no, no, much we, to we the We got club. heap shit. We got wooden spoon. But <laughs> right. he was a good bloke, so it checked right. out. But th- that type of thing, has it led to globalisation or is it people just confirming their interest in their area sort of geographically? You know, I think that's, that's a really great point. And, and even back in 99 when I was playing in Perth, we had uh, – we had a British head coach. There were six Brits playing for the team. There were six Kiwis. Um, we we used to have a competition uh, between the Brits and the Kiwis about who would score more tries in a game. So there was um, six Kiwis, six Brits, and then a couple of Australians. None um, from Western Australia. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the force team right now. <laughs> it sounds like the force team yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, and this was back in 99. So, you know, Fast forward that to now, and yeah, absolutely. Rugby is a rugby is a global game, and it's growing. Um, you just got to look at if you look at the kind of the top level. Um, the last England head coach was Australian. Um, he's now moved back. Uh, there are other uh, nationalities coaching all around the world, uh, and what that means is that whilst rugby is not the biggest game in the world, it is global, and you will see people moving around, and that can be at a level. You know, as long as as long as someone can get some kind of visa or the ability to work in another country, you can go and play rugby wherever you want. Mm. Yeah, and that's one of the unique and amazing things from our game. You know, if you you go work in the UK, you can go play footy, you can go find a club, you can go find some mates. Um, I had one more question about the jobs. How do you like that? That's apples, Richard. Uh, Australian CEO just resigned today. You got the scoop on that job? Yeah, you're putting it out on Twitter? You you know the criteria? No. No one's approached me just yet, oh, okay. uh, but we'll. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, it, depending on the, uh, I might have to keep that one in the back pocket, depending on uh, <laughs> what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? What said? Uh, I actually wanted to ask a question about the, your other account that kind of dovetails with it: the the strength and conditioning vacancies. Um, has that exploded in the last few years? You know, with the talk of the the current fitness levels of players around the world, is uh, that exploded in particular countries more so than others, um, or is it just been a steady increase? Because it seems like it's become a bigger topic, I would say, within the last couple of years that we maybe last five years that everyone needs to have a strength and conditioning coach. We go away from um, the old traditional methods to going to getting in the gym to be the functional movements to get in all those points. Uh, would you agree with that point, or or is that not the case? That transition probably started around about the time rugby in the Northern Hemisphere became professional. Um, and you had much more of a liar. You had players that had more time, but then there was also more demands on them, and, and that's it. That's extrapolated. But then, you know, that's the same in every every professional sport. You look at um, NFL, NBA, anything over here in North America. You know, mm. it, it's that level of preparation that players are required to have. You know, rugby was always going to go down that route. It's a it's a collision and an invasion sport. So you know, if you can be faster, stronger, bigger, you're going to be a more effective player. And I think that. But the the use of S and C in rugby, um, I'm not sure you could be a professional team without that kind of level of preparation and involvement. Do you think that um, the game has slowed down a lot? 
Um, and, and, you know, down here in the Southern Hemisphere, we're always tweaking the rules to speed it up, to find that space in the field. Has the needle gone too far to collision from, from evasion? Um, when you look at, you know, just, just from your experiences, because dudes are enormous. Um, and, and there's not that much space in the footy field in super rugby. There is, uh, cause we're trying all these bloody rules to get the players tired. Um, and we're seeing a bit of evasion players like Corey tool finding space. But when you watch the international rugby, for me, it, it's who wins the collision tends to win the game. Do, do you think the needle's gone too far in that regard? I'm just curious your perspective. I think it did. I think that um, probably about 15 years after professionalism, there was a huge reluctance. So in the Northern Hemisphere, that would have been 95. So we're talking around about 2010. There was definitely an, a reliance on, on on size. And you could see that with the young guys pl- coming through um, from academies. They were, they, they were basically banking on size. And I think that needle has now started to swing the other way. And, and teams have realised that actually, if, if you need to, if you want to break down a, a really good defence, you're going to need fast, skillful players. I mean, there's always been fast and skillful players in rugby, but now people are looking at those kind of players to unlock those defences, and it's less about size and it's more about speed and skill. I mean, the thing is with professional rugby is that it's almost self-selecting in that, you know, because it is a, a, a physical sport, size will always will always play will always be a factor. Um, but if you are fast and you are skillful, you can overcome that, that size. And, and the phrase in the army, we say um, size wins, but speed kills. And I think that has always been relevant in rugby. I, like uh, no. I think there was just an emphasis on size. And now we're swinging back to that kind of speed and skill. You look at some of the top players in the world at the moment. Um, to a man, regardless of their position, they will all be relatively fast and they will all be relatively skillful. I just worry we've left fatigue out of the conversation a little bit um, with, with the slowness of scrum resets and those sorts of things um, and impromptu water breaks that that you can carry a prop who's <laughs> 130. Um, and then with the, the substitutions, which need to be that way for HIA, they're training to play 30 minutes. So they can just get on there and whack blokes. Um, I don't know. J- just yeah, just something I've, I've found. You're right. It's that we we talked about the uh, with um, Ben Alexander with the fact that that was the greatest uh, development in the in the proposition. You know, having the replacements allowed you to go at a higher intensity in short bursts because you knew you were always going to come off at that point. Uh, whereas if you didn't have the replacements, you couldn't withstand that for the whole period. So I, I would say that that's a big big issue because it's it's created less space. If you have fatigue, then obviously it's going to create more space, which is a big thing. The um, other thing with strength and conditioning, um, I guess I would say head knocks. Do, do you think there's a correlation to just the, the, the physicality of, of the blokes playing the game? Um, because we've got this huge concussion, you know, that we're trying to out-referee. But, you know, do you think there's been a correlation? I'm sure you don't have the data. Richard's our stats man. Um, but has there been a correlation of, of, you know, the more of these head injuries with just as, as more strength and conditioning gets into blokes? What do you think? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really interesting point. And, and I suppose I can only relate it to, to my experience. And I've had a couple of, couple of concussions. Um, the two that I can think of, one, I got tackled playing sevens and my head hit the floor, but the ground was rock hard. So that's why I got a concussion. Uh, the second time was um, 
I got I got I got hit. Totally legit tackle. Best tackle that's, uh, that's ever uh, I've ever experienced. Um, but I got hit that hard that uh, I, I blacked out slightly. Um, and was a bit concussed, you know, straight after the game. But that was, you know, those two events were, were a number of years ago, not not now. And it wasn't against it wasn't against professionals. Um, I think that the there is probably now more of a a understanding of the risks, and there's an understanding that you know if a, if a player's stood up and his legs are wobbly, you know, you're not going to just say, "All right, fella, crack on." Um, and give them a bit of smelling salts. You, you need to do something about it, and you actually need to help that player. Whereas before, if you, you know, thirty years ago, if you were playing rugby and, and you were a bit wobbly and out on your feet, you'd probably get a cold wet sponge over the back of the head and, and, and a slap on the bum and told, "Right, fella, carry on." Well, we know that that's not right now, um, and I think that making rugby more accessible to everyone will benefit rugby globally. So whether that's making it more exciting, making it safer, or at least trying to mitigate those those long term risks of playing rugby, that can only be a good thing. Mm. I think it'd be. Uh, I'd love to actually touch on obviously the PhD work that you're doing at the moment, and you've got your your Grey Wolf team set up, which is looking at obviously strategic planning, leadership, a bit of culture. We need some of that in this podcast. We've we, there should be three of us, and one of us has left us standing. He's gone on his honeymoon for a few weeks. So Culture's like, not good enough. It's not good enough, man. There's there's not enough <laughs> for leadership from either Blake or I. He, you know, apparently I'm the chairman of the group, so I'm failing in my duties to try and organise this. CEO. Yeah, you absolutely are. But we don't know the difference between the two. <laughs> but what what is in the you know what is some what are some of the things that you that you encourage professional sports teams and you know because you obviously talk about it from your military background you know obviously what are some of the key core principles about trying to to get that sense of, of culture and and teamwork um to, to obviously bring about success don't give the whole book away but you know, no because tease, you can find tease. it at amazon.co.uk i'm sure as well right right so the 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 handbook is kind of based on on three um three interlinked areas have you got and, a pen and paper um, like this yeah, ready. <laughs> if you if you are looking to develop your your team culture and the sort of uh, what people might call your atmosphere and develop trust in your team members, and Fuck, we're sent to essentially yeah, we're absolutely all screwed. of these words are terrifying. Yeah, I know. No, sorry, go on. We're uninterrupting you. And so, what what you're essentially trying to do is is increase performance on the pitch, and you can do that by these three interrelated areas. And the first one is shared experience. So that is creating an environment where your players can can share on-field and off-field experiences. That does a whole load of things in terms of improving their um, their trust, their communication, their cohesion. That then leads to a, a an increase in something called mutual understanding. So that is your players understanding each other. It's the players understanding the coaches and vice versa. It's the organisation understanding where it's going as a whole. And it's where uh, understanding where those players and the coaches and the staff fit into that organisation and how they can push it forward. So those two those two are really linked um, and will follow each other. The third area then is um, having positive or good leadership. Now, we all know what good leadership feels like. We also know what bad leadership feels like. When you think about times when you've experienced what you might call bad leadership but within leadership it's really high levels of empathy and if you can develop or increase the levels of empathy within an organization that coach to player player to player you know throughout the organization the research shows that high levels of empathy uh, correlate to an increase in performance now that's in particular in areas like healthcare or business or finance 
that hasn't quite been explored in rugby yet, and that's what I'm looking at. So, well, can I just areas. jump in then and, and would say from our careers? You, you our, said you said you weren't going to. Yeah, but I will because I found that fascinating. <laughs> in our in our world outside of this, when we're not taking the mick, um, teachers and in educational leadership roles uh, within our various institutions. Um, and I think what you're saying is mm. is is spot on. Mm. Um, and as educators, that idea of empathy, both mm. with your staff um, and then that shared experience with your staff, but also with the student body as well. I'm thinking rugby now, and I'm thinking Eddie Jones, right? We, we all love it. He's a larrikin. I loved him better about it probably 24 months, about 12 months ago, yeah, something like that. Trader then. Um, <laughs> but... You know, we've all heard the stories, and I love that that idea you've spoke about shared experience. I'm thinking Dave Rennie with the guitar, um, that idea of you know bringing the inside to the group, that collegiality, and then we hear about Eddie sending blokes sausages, telling them they're not a steak player, um, telling the players, you know, the wrong time for training to see what they do. You know, those those almost. I'm trying to word this carefully, but almost like... You can tell we've got a guest. You never word anything carefully. Domestic violence style, keep them guessing, manipulate them, um, you know, make them want to be part of it, but then push back against them. What's doing there? Where does that fit in that that empathy pile? Or, or is he a maverick and the rest of the institution is ticking those boxes and he's the wrecking ball, the agent of chaos to keep elite athletes on their toes. How does he fit into that equation? Because mm. I love what you're saying and I can see it in my real life, but the, the articles I read about Eddie, mm. um, I'm sure it's not the full story, but but it's the picture being painted. What do you think? He's he's a really interesting character. The stories that come out, especially from the England camps and, and probably you know more recently from, from Australia. Um, there's a couple of things, I think. There's a couple of areas that... that Eddie Jones likes to likes to prod and push, and, and, and one of those I think relates to um, relates to what you could call tough empathy. Um, and let's take an example. Let's say the three of us were we're on a patrol. Um, you know, we're dressed in army. I tell you what, you're in right? heaps of trouble. I am by the, the way. last heaps of trouble. I, I shoot myself in basic training. Yeah. You've written the pamphlet <laughs> and you've ended up with us to the, the book. I like, may be seriously, history you teacher, need a better job. You but I am not. I am not the soldier you want next to you. <laughs> no. Anyway, let's, we'll let's take the metaphor. Time. We'll run yeah. with it. Yeah. And so, and the three of us are at the front of the patrol, and, and, when, um, and there's some shooting that starts from perhaps an enemy location up on top of a hill in front That's of us. Outrageous. Yeah. Now, we are, we've got the rest of the team, you know, kind of spread out behind us, and everyone dies for cover. Now, um, we know, or I would know, that, you know, ahead of us, we have to do something about that. We would have to deal with that enemy position because if we didn't, some of those people behind us might not be coming home. So I'm I wouldn't so glad people say, like you exist. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and if you tell <laughs> me to jump in that moment, I am jumping. <laughs> anyway, go on. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask your opinion at this time. I wouldn't say, what do you think we should do? Um, you know, what's your ideas on this? I, I would look at the situation and we would know, uh, you know, that we had to go and deal with that there and there. And, and, you know, there'd probably be some robust language and some direction and we would go and deal with that enemy position because we know that if we didn't, the people behind us might not be coming home. And so there's an, and that's not because, you know, we're mean or we don't like each other. It's because we understand that if we didn't, then the people that are our colleagues and that we respect, you know, and that we, you know, that we like, they might behind us, they might not be coming home. So 
there is an element of, of tough empathy and you can be quite robust and also empathetic at the same time and it also links to the way that the the military does um resilience uh if you if you work out what is what stresses you okay and you can find out what causes you anxiety or stress in a sporting context what you can do is then you can design your training or your environment or your, your situations to add a little bit of that stress a little bit of inoculation a little bit like getting a vaccine and over time you increase that you increase that stress or or, or you, you you change it or you uh you change the parameters so that that stress increases bit by bit over time and what that means is that when it comes to game day or, or you're in a situation um that people might find stressful actually you're quite comfortable with it because you've experienced it in training previously and that's the way that the army kind of looks at resilience and what Eddie Jones appears to do, and I've never been part of the England setup from an outsider's perspective, he seems to be pushing that little bit of resilience up and up each time with these little interactions he has with the team. Um, and I should also say that you can you can have a, a so that shared experience I mentioned, it can be positive and, and ideally it is positive, but actually shared experience, if it's negative in the long term, can also achieve a similar effect. So in the military, for example, I've been on I've been on exercises or situations where we've been cold, wet, hungry, tired. And at the time you think, oh, this is awful. I wish I wasn't here. But then afterwards, when when the group gets back together, when when you're back in barracks or you're back at the patrol base and it's dry and you're, you you've had some food and it's warm and comfortable, you kind of look back on that and and even though it was negative, it was a bonding experience. So there's a couple of things at play here. And Eddie Jones is a really, really interesting example of, uh, I think, of, of someone who looked at things a little bit differently. But I can definitely see some parallels between sort of military concepts and how he operates. You can see that there's a method to madness in the way ex-players talk of their relationship with him or how highly they think of him. It would appear that that's what is occurring. Mm. So that's fascinating. It really is. And I think there's, um, and to build on your point, that prior experience or to, to build that resilience, so is there a raft of other psychological strategies that you reckon are really vital, whether that's visualization, imagery, whether that's the idea of even relaxation techniques to try and in the moment to try and reduce that, that state anxiety at that specific moment that are essential to be implemented consistently over a period of time or not? Yeah, I think... No, I think I think there is, and I think that um, I think rugby, I think sport, but I think rugby is something to to look at this. The number of mental skills coaches who are now being employed at the top level and in sort of Premiership Super Rugby kind of area, um, it speaks to that. Um, and I think that that can only be a good thing. I certainly, if I think of my experience about playing rugby, I was always one of those players who who wanted to be more relaxed and laugh and, and you know you know, chill out before a game, whereas other players I know would be walking around, you know, punching walls and, and headbutting each other. And, but that's that was up to them. That was up to the individual. And I think that as a coach, if you then, if you can really understand your players, you can then design your environment where actually each player can, can be themselves. Um, and if they are a, a chilled music listener or they're headbutting walls, it doesn't matter. Your environment can, can accept all of those kinds of people. Hmm. I think it's, um, it's amazing. And... Uh, and I'm really interested in this concept, absolutely, because, you know, as you mentioned before, from not only our uh, our jobs within education, but also as, as sports coaches and sports lovers, I, I just think I love this thought process that, you know, 
that that's being put in place now and what would could have happened if we'd have put these things in place 20 years ago what what uh, evolution could have happened within the within the game of rugby or in any or with any um, sport really and the mental health of these players must be well hopefully uh, will improve as a result of all these things yeah you'd assume it's setting up for for life after mm, footy absolutely um, that'd be better as well now, I have one big question, uh, one more big question. Now, as I mentioned, there's normally three of us. Now, if we want to post on Rugby Vacancies, your website, to try and, uh, you know, to source out a, a third member of our uh, of our team because we've been left in high and dry the by CFO's Jim again. CFO's gone. The CFO's gone, man. Jim, he's just not here. Uh, we, we'll, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll let you know and we'll put in. There's no funds available to there now, is there? No, no, there's no, no funds. No, no funds, but uh, we'll put it out there. But... Uh, <laughs> Please, uh, obviously, go on there, guys. Go onto that Rugby Vacancies uh, uh, Twitter feed. It's actually really good. I had to scroll through it yesterday, even just to look at all the jobs you have available and to dream that maybe that's one day I could leave my job and go and uh, go and follow my passion to be uh, a, a rugby coach or someone in the rugby sphere. So thank you so much for joining us. And, and, and thanks for the, the work you do in that space, yeah. um, especially in Canada. Like, it's so strange. You you played rugby in Perth. You're in Canada. Mm. It's a, it's a hell of a rugby story, mm. um, and it's it's awesome. I know. Uh, actually, I got one, uh, one quick class one. Is that okay? I'll allow it. Are you sure? Okay, thank you. Appreciate this. Uh, where, where do you reckon the next big growth will be? Because you mentioned the fact that you've had uh, had so many different things going on, which is amazing. The rugby vacancies, the strength and conditioning vacancies. You've now got your PhD. You know, with your with your um, you know your your mystic eye looking forward. What's it called? Mystic. Uh, ball, whatever it is. What do you reckon the next big growth is within the sport? That's a really interesting point. And I think that rugby rugby will only become a truly big global game when we increase the bottom of the pyramid. So that mm. grassroots level of rugby um, from the lowest level, from, you know, your, your under fives or under sevens, picking up a ball for the first time, all the way up to your kind of, you know, World Cup final. If the base of Which the pyramid grows, will be get more numbers growing, then that will that will benefit rugby as a whole because all of those all of those kids who are playing will become adults who play, who will become club members, who one or two might become professional, but the vast majority of us will be will only ever be amateur. But we can still have a passion for the game. We can still be involved in the game, and that that growth of rugby will only happen once that grassroots level begins to grow. And and that I think is probably a struggle, especially if you look at. Um, in, you know, let's take let's take Australia um, and the UK for example. You've got um, huge levels of other sports um, that compete with rugby, or that are competing for those you know for those for those players and those and those fans. If we can if we can change if we can develop that and develop that bottom of the pyramid, rugby grows. How to do that? That's a difficult question. Uh, there is, let's take North America up here, for example. Rugby is a really niche sport up here, mm. uh, over here. And so, um, you know, rather than competing against, say, the NFL or the NBA or something, you know, a big organisation like that, rugby could position itself as the alternative. So you can be into whatever sport you're in and your second sport is rugby. And if all of those fans of all those other sports have rugby as their kind of second interest sport, rugby grows globally. How is MLR going? I know I'm interrupting and I'm, we, I apologise, but how is MLR going? Is it is it doing all right? Uh, it, it appears to be going all right. Um, the league, I can't remember what season the league's in now, but it appears to be sustainable. Um, but that might be, you know, there might be an issue of, of 
maybe it's being propped up by owners. I'm not really sure, but seems to be sustainable. Can I just I just want to jump on two of your points that you said then. Um, one is, you know, rugby's a niche sport and it's a niche sport in Australia. If you were here in 99, they were the glory years, mate. It is on life support in this country um, outside of the rugby bubble. And I just want to say on that, that base level, there is something unique about rugby that it has to offer. Um, and, and this sounds incredibly silly and it's incredibly anecdotal, but my son's three. So he does swimming, gymnastics, all the different things. They're all great. All the teachers are lovely. But he, he went to rugby tots on the weekend for his first ever go at rugby. And there was Rug, something. Ru- rugby? Right. It was pretty impressive. But there was something unique about rugby values. And they actually used that term. And the way that they applauded the other kids, the way everyone had to put their hands in, the way everyone had to shake hands. And it sounds almost trivial. And I know other sports are doing those things, but it does feel unique to rugby that there is something that rugby has to offer the community beyond just the game, um, mm. that there is a culture that rugby can sell. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that's how the grassroots grows mm. and, and that's why we all love it. Mm. No, I think you're right. I think if, if, those, if those values can be maintained, uh, I think if those values can can grow, then it'll be a really that, that's a, that's that's a, that's something good that rugby can offer. So when rugby is kind of selling itself to to parents and and, young, and players, that is one area I think that rugby can provide a real difference as long as that kind of those values are maintained. Yeah, and imperative that they are. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, just finally, thank, thank you so much for joining us today. I love your story and love the, all the different, um, obviously, things that you're going on. You are a very, very busy man. And I apologize for the fact that you were lumped in with us too as well, um, even in your analogy. Uh, but thank you for joining us. Um, I would and, encourage anyone who listens, yeah. follow the Twitter account, go get yourself a new job, um, go get the book. Yeah, and um, that that book is, I think, is a really good a really good read. As you say, they can be their transferable skills from – you know, not only to sport, but to everyday life in regards to the job that you're in to try and build the most cohesive workforce that you can ever get. So yeah, there were things um, you were saying and bells were digging in my brain. It was awesome. Absolutely. He will be okay. quoting it and stealing if anybody it. Wants to, um, if anybody wants to have a read of it, it's called Battlefield to Sports Field. Uh, it's on Amazon in all territories. Legend. Awesome. Thank thanks, you. Mate. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah. No, thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure.